Well, good morning, church. Good morning. I, in, I invite you all to turn in your Bibles to the book of Psalms. Psalm 16, you'll find right near the middle of your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. Feel free to use that. But this morning's text will be, again, from Psalms chapter 16. And I'll read the whole chapter, but we're going to primarily focus on just the last verse, on verse 11. So while you turn in your Bibles there, I'll give you just a second. Psalm chapter 16, and I'm going to read the whole chapter, if you will read with me. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my God, I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Typically when I wake up in the morning, the very first thing that I see is a picture hanging on the wall next to our bed. It's a, a photograph capturing the moment that I asked Hannah to marry me. We were in this beautiful, historic chapel on our seminary's campus. I had hired a photographer to, to hide and secretly take this picture as I proposed to Hannah. Thankfully, it went the way that it did, or else that would be a really awkward photograph. But I, I asked her to marry me, and, and I did this, this uh, had this photographer come and take this picture as a gift to Hannah so that she would get to see it and cherish it. However, it has ended up being an even greater gift for me as I get to wake up each morning and, and look up and, and see that photo and remember the joy that I felt as I experienced that moment. Now, it's not just because tomorrow is Valentine's Day that I bring this up, as I'm sure every husband in the room has not allowed the Super Bowl to cause them to forget. But I bring that up this morning because I'm going to be talking about joy and the joy that we receive from God. There's a difference, right? There's, there's a difference between the joys and satisfactions of this life and the joy and satisfaction that we receive from God. When I look at that picture on the wall, me on one knee, Hannah clasping her hands together and looking down at me, I'm filled with joy. But try as hard as I might to remember no matter how perfect the photograph may be, no matter how 
uh, flawless my memory may be of that moment, it is impossible for me to experience the exact joy that I felt in that moment. It's just a memory of what I was able to experience. Now, I can say honestly that I love Hannah more today than I did even then. I can even say that we've had other, um, even in some cases, better experiences in our marriage, the joys of getting to see our children born, the uh, experiences that we've gotten to go through as a family, the highs and lows of marriage. There have been other experiences that, that we've gotten to um, take part in together that have filled us with joy, that have filled me with joy. And each one I get to look back on and I get to remember the joy that I felt in that moment. However, the moment has passed. And no matter how well I can remember it, I will never be able to experience that joy exactly as I did on that day. And the difference between that joy and the joy that we experience from God is that while the joys of this world and this life fade and they come and go, the joy that we experience from God is eternal. And this is key to understanding the text that we're looking at this morning. You have to understand that the joy in this life comes and goes and fades, but the joys that come from God, our Father in heaven, will never end. And so as we look at our text, before we arrive at fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore, in verse 11, we cannot afford to not consider how we get there. How do we get to pleasures forevermore? How do we get to fullness of joy? He says at the beginning of verse 11, he says, you make known to me the path of life. Being satisfied with God draws on our affection towards him. But how are we satisfied in God? How do we delight in the Lord? How do we find our joy in him? How do we cherish him? There is no satisfaction in God, no fullness of joy, no pleasures forevermore, no love for God at all, the Bible tells us, unless he has loved us first. And so there was a time in my marriage, sorry, not in my marriage, but in my life, when Hannah and I did not love one another. Merely 10 years ago, we just met. And I can remember going out with some friends on this one night, and among them was this girl I had never seen before, and I was smitten by her. And when I finally worked up the nerve to ask her out, she said, I'm not dating right now. And I said, well, that's fine. Let's go on, uh, let's not, let's, uh, let's go to some dinners and we'll talk about it. And that worked. So we went on a few of these not date dinners at the time. And I did everything I could to get to know her, to be around her. Um, I did some things that were just ridiculous. I, I started a, uh, or I tried to start a weekly bowling group among our mutual friends, hoping that she would come. Of course, she hates bowling. I, uh, next, I did the thing that no Christian college girl could resist. I started an in-depth Bible study on the Gospel of John, and I invited her. Now, that must have worked, because a mere two years later, she agreed to date me. Y'all are laughing, but I'm married now, all right? It worked, all right? 100% efficient, maybe just a little bit slower 
than I would have liked. But had I not pursued her, had I not desired to get to know her, to be around her, I can't imagine a scenario where we would be married today. And so it is in our relationship with God. There's a scene in this movie, it's one of my favorite movies called Amazing Grace. It's about the life of William Wilberforce. And there's a scene in there when he's sitting in a a field by himself and his butler approaches him because there's guests in the house that he's supposed to be attending to. And Wilberforce is just reflecting on the love of God in that moment. And, And this is new for the butler. Wilberforce hadn't Uh, spoken of things of God before, so his butler looks at him and he says, you found God, sir? And Wilberforce responds, I think he found me. In 1 John 4.19, John writes, we love because he first loved us. What more could we say than this? We love, John's talking about our love for God. We love God because he, God, loved us First, we owe our love for God to God. Think about that. We owe the love, the very love that we have for God, we owe it to God. He pursued us, and he made known to us the path of life. In Acts, Saul, being guilty of persecuting Christians, having thrown Uh, Christians in jail, having them them uh, stoned in the street, he encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus, on his way to persecute more Christians. And Jesus says to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? And that defining moment in Saul's life results in his transformation from the, the Christian persecutor Saul into the apostle Paul, who pins a quarter of the New Testament. God did not wait for Saul to figure out all along that he had been wrong. God pursued Saul. Saul was on his way to persecute more Christians, and Jesus intervened. Jesus loved Saul first, and he even pursued Saul while Saul was persecuting him. And of course, the the greatest example of God's love, which comes for us before we ever turn to him, is seen on the cross. Romans 5, 8, Paul says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you want proof that God loved you and that he pursued you long before you ever turned to him, look at the cross. He sent his own son to die for you. It is Jesus' death on the cross that leads to the path of life. And this is what you have to understand this morning. If we are considering fullness of joy and considering pleasures forevermore, and you say, well, I want that, I want to experience that, there is no experiencing that except through the cross. The text says, you make known to me the path of life. There's only one path that leads to life. Jesus says in Mark 8.35, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life 
will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. The only path that leads to life is through the cross. But do you see the irony in that? The path that leads to life is through death. The path that leads to your fullness of joy and your pleasures forevermore is through denying yourself and taking up your cross and following him. That's where faith begins. It begins with denying yourself, but it ends with fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. When we look for satisfaction, where do we find it? Do we find it in friends? Do you depend on others to make you happy and to keep you satisfied? Do we find it in things? One comedian put it this way, uh, money doesn't buy happiness. Well, it buys a jet ski, and have you ever seen a sad person on a jet ski? Do you find your joy in what you accomplish, being the best at whatever it is that you do, getting the promotion over your coworkers to prove that you're better than them or that you deserve it more than them? Do you find your joy in sins that you would rather not mention this morning? Do you need your, uh, do you find your satisfaction in things that only can be des- uh, described as from this world? The common mantra of the world is that we can and should find our joy, our satisfaction, our fulfillment in whatever we want. We just have to go get it. However, God says differently. The path to life that leads to fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore is found in Christ alone. Through faith in his death, burial, and resurrection, And he has made known to us this path of life through his gospel. You make known to me the path of life. And then the second part of that verse. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. In Matthew 13, we see the parable of the hidden treasure. In it, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. In this parable, the man who finds the treasure becomes so filled with joy that in his joy, in his excitement, in his satisfaction in what he has found, he goes and he sells everything else that he has so that he can obtain this one treasure. The joys of this life do not compare to the treasures of Christ. The kingdom of heaven is like this. It's it's so joy-giving that it's worth giving up everything that we have in this life just that we might experience it. The kingdom of heaven is not just where we go, though, when we die, right? It's not just that place you go if you don't go to hell. What makes heaven so great isn't the the streets made of gold, the, the ailments, diseases, or pains that we'll be rid of, the heartbreak that we'll no longer experience, or the fact that there won't be any more death. That's not what makes heaven so great. 
what makes the kingdom of heaven so great, so worth giving up everything that we have in this life in order that we might receive it is that we will be in the presence of God. In your presence is fullness of joy. Now there's a a joy that I get when I see my child's face. Even greater still is the joy that I get when I see their face and they look at me and they are filled with joy. When I walk through the door and they see me and they run up to hug me. When they want to play with me. When they want me to tickle them. When, when they just want to be near me. It fills me with joy. I was telling this story to the students a few weeks ago. But there was one night when James had gotten in trouble after trouble after trouble after trouble after trouble, and he just could not stop. And he was refusing to go to bed out of anger. He wouldn't even lay down to go to sleep. And finally, after a, after a, a large amount of time, we'll just say, I finally got him to lay down. And he reached up and he grabbed me and he hugged me and he put his arms around his neck and he said, Daddy, you have to stay here all night. He had been furious. He had yelled and screamed and thrown tantrums, all of which had had caused more and more consequences. Even still, after being disciplined time and time again, The thing that he could not imagine losing was my presence. All he wanted was to be near me. That fills you with joy. But there's a misunderstanding that I think culture has about Christianity and about the relationship that we have with the Father. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, right? Well, they hear that we have to be afraid of God, that we have to terror and and cower away from God in order to be saved. Like a child that's afraid of his father's hand. But that's not a fear of the Lord. That's a fear of punishment. That's That's like a fugitive fears being arrested. And so he flees from the law. The fear of God should keep us near God. He's so great and so good that we fear being apart from Him. A child shouldn't be afraid of his father's hand. When I reach my hand down to James, he knows that it's there for him to hold it. It's because there might be danger around. I need to keep him safe. Or I want to comfort him. Or I just want to be near him. So we cross the street and he holds my hand, or we're in a crowded room where he could get lost, so he holds my hand, or we're in a room where if he were given freedom to roam, he would inevitably run around and get in trouble, and so he holds my hand. But even when my hand is not there to protect him, there's much more that my hand does. It provides for him. It holds him when he's hurt. It tickles him when he wants to play. It rubs his back when he wants to sleep, and yes, it is firm when he chooses to disobey. 
but we should fear God in this way. That we fear being apart from Him. He is so great that we fear displeasing Him with our sin and so good that we could never imagine being separated from Him. We don't fear being separated from God because then we'll get in trouble and He'll have to punish us. We, don't, we fear being apart from God because that is where the joy is. That is where we are most satisfied. That's where we want to be. Being satisfied with God does not mean that we get along perfectly in life and that we never sin again. It means that even when we find ourselves in sin and in need to repent, we don't hesitate. We don't fear what God might say or might do to us. Instead, we hurry back to God, and I should add, we find that he never left us to begin with. And we hurry back to God and we come near his side even when he is about to discipline us because even in discipline we are satisfied just to be near him. Being satisfied with God means that we are not satisfied apart from him. Being satisfied in God means that we are not satisfied when we are apart from from him. It does not mean that there's nothing else in life that we cannot enjoy. On the contrary, because, of the, because our joy is founded in God, we are free to enjoy life's pleasures all the more. The blessings that God has given to us, we can enjoy them. I can enjoy the relationship that I have with Hannah I can even love her more because my joy is not founded in her. My joy is founded in God. Hannah could make mistakes. Maybe I should turn that around. I can make mistakes, and I do often. But her joy is not diminished because of it, because her joy is not found in me. It's found in God. The same is true in all aspects of life. I can enjoy my children, my work, mowing my lawn, grilling out with friends, the things in life that bring me pleasure, that I, I enjoy to do. I can enjoy them all the more because my joy is not founded in those things. It's founded in God. My joy is in the presence of God. Now I'll give you an example of what I mean really quick. I enjoy eating cake. Amen? All right, then you should get this, uh, this analogy. Is it a sin to eat cake? No. However, if your joy is founded in eating the cake, then yes, it is a sin. Maybe it's gluttony, maybe it's idolatry, whatever. It's a sin if you're founding your joy in eating cake, as in you cannot be happy unless you're going to eat cake. However, if your joy is founded in God, then it's not a sin to eat cake. The difference is, when the cake is gone, does your joy remain? For that reason, finding joy in God increases the joy I have in eating cake. Bear with me. This is worth noting. If my joy is founded in cake, 
then as that final bite draws near, what happens? A deep terror wades in over my soul. Fear of abandonment and dread rush through my heart as I consider that the cake will soon be gone. Then what? What do I have to live for when there's no more cake? Make another cake. (laughs) There you go. Now, I know that this is a silly analogy. But what is it that you depend on in this life for joy? If my joy is founded in God and not in cake, then I don't fear the imminent final bite of cake. Right? I don't take the last piece and stick it in the fridge in a container where it will be nice and safe and keep it with me as long as I can? Even if I do that, what will happen to the cake? It will go bad. The cake's not going to stay there forever. And so it is with any joy that we have in this life, all of it has an expiration date. Founding our joy in God frees us up to enjoy life all the more so that the, the pleasures that come and go, don't steal our joy as they leave us because our joy was never founded in them to begin with. Our joy was founded in God. And finally, we already know where the joy comes from. It comes from the path of life. Through the path of life, understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ, putting your faith in Christ alone, That leads to the presence of God. And then, finally, at your right hand, are pleasures forevermore. In Psalm 16, we see fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. In verse 11. In verse 9, we see my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. Back up a little bit more. In verse 6, we see the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Back up even more, he says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Where does all this begin? We don't have an exact timeline of when David wrote this psalm, but based on how he began, it seems likely that this took place in one of the many situations where he found his life in danger. Verse 1, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Pastor Jacob just finished a, a series through the book of Philippians, and only just in the last chapter of the book, Paul commands the church in Philippi to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Now what situation was Paul in when he wrote that? He didn't write it from the balcony of his mansion. He didn't write it on a river cruise down the Nile. He didn't write it while he was celebrating a birthday among friends. No, Paul commands the church in Philippi to rejoice always while he is in jail. One other cultural misconception I think that uh, we see from the world about Christianity is the notion that we have to give up all of life's joys in order to be saved. 
As in we're trading the freedom that we have to do whatever we want, whenever we want it, for the rules and restrictions of the Bible. But that couldn't be further from truth. In fact, that's the exact opposite of reality. In faith, we are trading in the false joys and the fleeting pleasures uh, that this world has to offer for the fullness of joy and the eternal pleasures of God. We gain far more in Christ than what we give up in this world. We gain far more, abundantly more, infinitely more in Christ than what we give up in this world. How else can you explain a man in jail writing to his friends, rejoice in the Lord always? Again, I say rejoice. How else can a man in need of preservation and refuge say, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices? In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. How can you explain that if the joys of God are not greater than the joys of this world? Following the service, in the Family Life Center down here, our deacons are going to be hosting a lunch for the widows and the widowers in the church. You might think from the pretense of this lunch that this would be a very somber and gloomy event. However, if you know some of the people that will be in that room, if you could just peek in to the room as it happens, what you will see are some of the most joy-filled satisfied people in this congregation. How do you experience joy in the midst of suffering? How do you know satisfaction when the person that has shared the most of this life with you has passed away? It's because your joy was not placed in them to begin with. You love them, you cherish them, you miss them certainly but they were not the source of your joy. God is. This is the beauty of the joy that comes from God. Though the pleasures and joys of this life may come and go, the joy that comes from Him never ends. Jeremiah 2.13, God says of the Israelites, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What did the Israelites do? They, they forsook God, and they sought to replace Him with cisterns made by their own hands. They have deserted God and abandoned His presence along with His joys and along with His satisfaction in order to seek the satisfaction that they can make for themselves, to hold in cisterns that they have made for themselves. And what they find is that their cisterns can hold nothing. It's cracked. They can seek to fill it with whatever they want, relationships, experiences, idols, whatever it may be. They can seek to fill it with whatever they can find in this world, but it will never stay filled. God says that I am the fountain of living water. The joy that comes from God cannot be emptied. 
There is no end to the depths of the joy that we receive in him. Our satisfaction in him is not temporary, but eternal. That's pleasures forevermore. We waste our time seeking after temporary pleasures in this world, and we, we think that they'll keep us satisfied, that they will, they will quench our thirst, they will feed our hunger, but they always just fade away. Even if we spend our whole lives pursuing after the same satisfaction, the same joy, eventually it will be gone and it will leave us wanting more. I'll close with this because it's worth repeating. The path of life that leads to fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore is found through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's only through surrendering all that you have in this life, giving up every idol, every drug, everything that you have founded your satisfaction in, and turning to the one who provides full joy and eternal pleasures. If you can't imagine it being that simple this morning, then let me remind you of Jesus' own words in Matthew 7, verse 7 through 11. He says, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will open to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. If you want to experience fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore today. It's through the cross of Christ. It's through surrendering who you are and what you have and everything that you cling to in this life and receiving the one joy that's worth having. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you have offered to us, sinners though we are, a joy that is unspeakable. God, you have rescued us from our sins. You have given us new life. And in this life, your desire for us is that we would experience your presence where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. I pray, Lord, that we would cling to that truth. Father, if there is sin tempting us to neglect your presence, God, sin tempting to pull us from your side, God, I pray that you would give us the faith to reject it and to realize that the joy we have in you far exceeds the joys that sin attempts to lure us with. God, I pray that if there are those in this room who have not put their faith in you, who have not experienced that joy, God, I pray that you would stir in their heart the faith to believe that they might experience this as well. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.